come and do this lecture. I thought, like, maybe he told me to do a lecture in a way that if you go out there, you're working by yourself, and there's no ophthalmologist around, what to do, and then when to find one, and so forth. So hopefully that this will be helpful for you guys, okay? There's a, quite a few things I'm going to go through. I'm just going to go briefly about the exam portion and the uh, history. We'll talk a little bit about anatomy, and then I'm going to talk about the most common stuff that I've seen from you guys in the ER here. So I'm going to just talk about that with you guys as far as what to do with them if you're by yourself. So we're going to talk about the eyelid stuff, con stuff, cornea stuff, iris pupil and glaucoma stuff, retina, and optic nerve. So we're going to cover everything as much as we can. One thing about ophthalmology is the history really doesn't help you much because somewhat, yeah, that's, that's like exactly opposite of what internal medicine says and what they tell you in medical school. The reason for it is there's not that many complaints that come from the eye. They either have redness or they don't. They either have pain or they don't. And most of the time they have vision issues. And the vision issues, they're either there's vision loss, there's blurriness, there's shadows, floaters, whatever. They can quant uh, qualify what the vision loss is and how long they've had these issues. And that's why it makes it really hard when an eye patient comes into the ER for you guys to know what's going on because most of your stuff is going to come from your exam. And most of the exam stuff is so hard to master. So that's just a little thing. So when someone comes to the ER with complaint of vision problems, just think about the eye anatomy. So think about the layers of the eye that the light has to go through. So the first layer is the tear film. So for example, if have dry eyes or if they have conjunctivitis and they have a whole bunch of mucus, they're going to have blurry vision. The next layer that it hits is the cornea. And if there's any issues with the cornea, they're still going to have blurry vision. After that is going to be what's called the anterior chamber, which is this fluid-filled cavity. And things like iritis, you're going to have issues with that. And then the next layer is going to be oh, the pupil, the iris. So it hits the pupil. If, you're, if you have issues with the pupil, if it hits the pupil, it's not going to go all the way through the retina. And some of the glaucoma issues, you can look at the pupil and try to diagnose it that way. We'll go over that as well. The next one is the lens. So if you have a cataract or if there are any issues with the lens, that's the next layer the light's going to hit. The lens is supported by the ciliary bodies, which also produce the fluid in the eye that can uh, have issues with glaucoma, like angle closure glaucoma, which is the most common glaucoma you guys see in the ER. After that is the vitreous gel. That's just a clear medium. But if there's any issues, if they have a vitreous hemorrhage, or if they have inflammation in there, you're going to have blurry vision from that. After that, light hits the retina. If there's issues with the retina, then, and again, blurry vision. And then the last thing within the eye itself is the optic nerve that takes all the imaging uh, from the retina back to your brain. Okay. So as far as the eyelids go, one of the things that you guys always see is eyelid lacerations. And there's really not much of an exam, not much of a history. One thing about history to get is if any dog bites or any foreign body. If you're suspecting any foreign body, get a CT scan, okay? Because it might just not be just a laceration. There might be a foreign <coughs> body somewhere in the orbit. And usually it's good to have a good eye exam with these. Um, one thing you should consider as well is if the canalicular is involved also. If you're by yourself, you can look at the punctum where the tears drain into the nose from the corner of the eye. And you can try to probe it if you if you want if you're by yourself. Don't do it here where we're around, but you can try to <laughs> probe it <laughs> and see if it's all the way through. If it is involving the cannula, it has to be fixed within 24 hours because that whole thing just scars down and they can have chronic tear problems. Other than that, it can be fixed. Full thickness eyelid lacerations can be fixed within 24 to 48 hours. It's not an emergency. It's a it's a more of an urgent thing. So. Any questions on the eyelid one? So next thing you guys see, I put it eyelids because eyelids and lacrimal system are the same. So dactrocystitis is something you guys see often. So 
dacrocystitis. Who can tell me if it's preceptal or uh, orbital cellulitis? Preceptal. Preceptal, exactly. It can, if it becomes worse, it can become orbital cellulitis. And it's always because there's an obstruction somewhere in the whole drainage system. But initially, when you guys see them like this, you want to treat them with IV antibiotics if they're really sick, or PO antibiotics if they're not that sick, and warm compresses and massage. It's so tempting to go and IND that thing, but the problem is, because it's all c contained in the lacrimal sac, and if you do that, there's a chance that they could progress into later f having fistulas from the sac into the skin, and there's problems with that. So unless it's like what they call a pointing abscess, try to leave it alone and don't IND it, even though it's so tempting. Yeah. Is that where it's come to a head? Yeah. It's, it's going to burst anyway, so you might as well just tap a lot. Okay. So, another thing, um, retrobulbar or traumatic hemorrhages. So when they come in, they've usually been in this horrible accident. First of all, they're not going to be talking to you, but if they are, you can ask them about their vision, and if they have no vision issues, and that means it's, it's a good thing. But if they have vision problems, their pupils aren't reacting well, um, if you're suspecting something, if you're not 100% sure, if you're like, maybe you, you think there's like 10%, 20% chance, 30% chance, get a CT orbit. But if you're like very sure that there's a retrobulbar hemorrhage and this orbit is a tight orbit, go ahead and do the cantholytic cantholysis. And I'm going to tell you about that as well. But one thing is, if even if there is blood behind the orbit, if the pressure of the orbit is not high, it's not a compartment syndrome. So you don't really have to do anything. You can just observe and the blood will just clear by itself, okay? So you can use your tono pen and check the pressure, yes. So if it's traumatic, my understanding is we shouldn't be checking um, pressure. Yeah. Tono pen if you're afraid of, like, you know, globe rupture and things like that. So would you just do a careful exam to see if you see any obvious globe rupture before you check the pressure? Yes. Because if it is a globe rupture and you go in with the tonal pen, you could like express all the contents of the or uh, the eye out, and that's like a worse prognosis. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's if it, if the uh, globe is ruptured, they're gonna have no pressure of the orbit because it's already ruptured and everything has come out anyway. Even if they have a, a hemorrhage in, behind the orbit, behind the globe. But yeah, if you're suspecting, very good point. So don't don't press on the eye. But yeah, if, you're, if, if there is a retrobulbar hemorrhage, check with the tonal pen if the eye is fine. If the pressure is fine, you don't really have to do anything, even though it looks bad and it's hard to open the eye. One thing is, they're so swollen that when you try to open it, you artificially are putting pressure on the eye and it makes the pressure go up. But that's just something to note. Okay, how do you do a cantholytic cantholysis? So, the corner of the eye is called the canthus. And there's two, basically... This is the upper eyelid that comes down, the lower eyelid that comes down, and it's all attached to one little thing, and that whole thing is attached to the side of the, or, uh, the bony orbit, okay? So, this whole thing is like a Y. Cantotomy is making this Y into a V shape. So, all you're doing is you're cutting here. So, the best thing to do, if they're out of it, they have no pain, you can just do it. But if they do, just put some anesthetic there and just take a 15 blade and just cut the skin first, okay? When you cut the skin, then you get into the, then you get into this little canthus area. Then you take your straight scissors and you just cut it. You just cut along the same, uh, same line that your eyelids are coming together, okay? So you're basically making that Y into a V. And then, that by itself is not enough because you really need to free that eyelid off the, off the bony orbit, okay? So the next step is to make that V into two little separate lines, and that's the cantholysis. So once you've cut that, you take your forceps, you take the edge of your eyelid, and you pull it away from the eye, and just point towards the, let's see, points to, point towards the ipsilateral shoulder, and just cut. You're going to cut like the conjunctiva, you might cut a lot of stuff, but <laughs> it doesn't matter because it can all be fixed, but if they go blind, that's, you can't fix that. So just when you know you've done it well is when you have your forceps, you have your eyelid held in your forceps, it's going to come off 
all the way. Like you can, like, you can basically put their eyelid on their cheek. Oh That's how loose it needs to be. And then you check the pressure again, see if that helps. If not, then you have to do the upper eyelid as well. Any questions there? Okay. <laughs> so the next one is orbital fracture. This is also something we get all the time. So one thing to know is always, if, if you're suspecting any trauma, get a CT scan after you for sure know there's no orbital hemorrhage that you need to do your emergent cantolysis, cantotic cantolysis. But get a CT scan, and that will tell you if there's any fractures, and that will give you a rough idea if there is any globe rupture or not. Just because the globe still looks round in the CT doesn't mean it's not ruptured. But if it does look like, I don't know, a raisin, that's for sure ruptured. Um, one thing is with the orbital fractures, a lot of the time when they come in, they have numbness on their cheek. Do you guys know why? Yeah. So the inferior orbital runs under, right under the orbit, basically. And the most common bone to fracture in the orbit is the floor. So when that fractures, it like cuts the nerve too. So that's one thing to, if you, if you like your exam before you get your CT, that's one thing you can check. Um, always get someone to do a good eye exam. If they have no eye problems, and if you're by yourself, then I guess you can wait, but since we're here, it's nice to have a good eye exam on them because of any trauma you can have issues. And um, so the treatment is, first you can give them uh, antibiotics if you want. This is controversial. Sometimes they say don't do it, sometimes they say do it. The reason that they say do it is because basically now you have a connection between your sinus and your orbit. So potential for infection. But even in our textbooks, say, some say yes, some say no. So I don't know, that depends on you. The, uh, the one thing that you should know when you get a fracture is these things. If the muscles entrapped, if they're having bradycardia, or they're having heart block, nausea, vomiting, or syncope. Do you guys know why they would get any of these? Any guesses? Yeah, it's because of the oncocardiac reflex. So if their muscles get entrapped in the bone, or any fragments are touching against the muscle, it constantly makes them have this uh, vagus nerve stimulation and bradycardia. So that's indication for actually emergent repair because you want to undo that. And if their muscles are entrapped without having any of these, it's still a concern to go. And because if the muscle scars down or if it becomes ischemic, that's it. You're going to have double vision for the rest of their life. Other than that, which is basically 90% of, of, of all the orbital fractures, you can wait up to one to two weeks to repair that. And it's actually best for them as far as final <coughs> outcome because once they have the injury, there's so much blood, there's so much inflammation in the orbit that no matter what you do, everything's going to scar down. So if you free up that muscle, it's going to still scar down. It's such a harder surgery to do. But if you wait a few days, week to two weeks before you go and uh, plate the fracture site to put everything back into the orbit, they actually do much better and they have a better <coughs> outcome. Any questions there? Okay. <laughs> I have a question? Yeah. Is it uncommon or does it occur where people don't show any signs of entrapment acutely? in the emergency department or wherever they are, and then they develop entrapment? Or if, if you don't see it up front, you're not going to get it? If you don't see it up front, it's very unlikely to get it later. The reason that you get entrapment is because the bone doesn't fracture all the way, so you have this trapdoor effect, and when the blow goes, it pushes everything into that trapdoor. And once it's in there, it just stays in there. Now, if, if they go into another trauma after the initial trauma, yes, you can have that, but initially, if you don't have it, then you don't have it, because you have to push everything through that trapdoor. So what's all this junk here? Blood. Blood, yeah. Okay. Okay, so more about orbits. This is the last slide on orbits. So preceptal and orbital cellulitis. So what you need to know is, what's the difference? Who can tell me what's the difference, what's the difference between the two? Tell me about when the patient walks into your room, or you go into their room, 
what are you asked them or what are you looking for to know which one it is? Yes, it's all in there too. <laughs> yes, pain with movement, if they have any vision changes, if that vision changes, it's been like, it's pretty advanced that they're having visual changes. Um, but yeah, pain with movement, or they have double vision, or if they have limited movement of their eyes, that is an indication. The other thing you can do is you can get a CT if you're not sure, and they will be able to tell you. Um, either way, the treatment is antibiotics. Whether it's PO, you can give PO to both uh, preceptal and orbital cellulitis. It just depends how sick they are and how responsive they are and their history. If they've been in the hospital a lot, then probably you want to go with IV. If they're very healthy and so forth, <coughs> go with PO. Um, same thing, you can even give IV to a preceptal. Does it mean anything? The only time that you go and do surgery on these patients or they need surgical intervention, if there is an abscess and the, and the abscess is causing a type organ. It's like having a retrobulbar hemorrhage. But that abscess is not going to go away by antibiotics because the antibiotics don't penetrate. Any questions there? Okay. So conjunctivitis. This is something that you guys see all the time. Actually, you guys have more experience with this than I do because they never reach me, okay? <laughs> so you can tell me if I'm wrong. But most of the time they have, it's basically just the conjunctiva is this transparent skin over the eyes that becomes inflamed. It's like a mucous membrane. Like when you have a runny nose, it's basically that. So they, it can be infected by all the viruses and bacteria as well. Um, usually, their vision is actually okay. Um, if they have a lot of mucus buildup and all that, it can cause their vision to be blurry. And most often, 99% of the time, it's painless. So that's one thing to consider. And you can put some fluorescein in there, and you can flip their eye, lower eyelid and look at it, and you can see all these follicles. These are just lymphoid tissue because of all the inflammation and infection that's in the eyelids and in the conch, because the conch not only covers this part, the white of the eye, it actually covers your, in the inside of your eyelid as well, okay? So, because it's so loosely adherent here, you don't really see much of the inflammation, but it's so, it's like tucked down into the eyelid, you can see the inflammation. So you can do the staining if you want. They shouldn't have any corneal staining either. This is allergic conjunctivitis. This is chemosis. Because the conge is so loosely adherent, all the fluid just builds up. It's like third spacing type of a thing. And this is someone with contact lens use, and they have these huge, huge inflammatory reactions. You just tell them to take the contacts out and not use it, and use a whole set of new drops and lenses and everything after a month of not using it. Okay, um, so scleritis and episcleritis. Who can tell me what the difference is? So someone comes in with a <coughs> red eye. This is one of those red eyes. So one thing you can do is, if you have some phenylephrine laying around, if you put a drop of phenylephrine in anyone who has conjunctivitis or episcleritis, after like two minutes, their eye is going to be very white. They're going to be like, oh, you, you like healed me but it's, it's obviously it's going to come back. But that's one way to know the difference. The, the importance comes in the fact that scleritis can cause perforation, needs systemic workup. Episcleritis, it's going to result by itself. They can just take some ibuprofen and some artificial tears, and they'll be just fine. So the way to tell them apart is the phenylephrine test. Or if you really want to know, you can take like a, a Q-tip and just go over the area that's red and just move it. If it does move with your Q-tip, it's not the sclera because the sclera is not going to be moving with your Q-tip. So that's another way to tell as well. Okay? And as far as systemic workup that they will need, it's all the rheumatologic issues that they need to have worked up. And if it goes untreated, okay, so this is a picture of scleritis, episcleritis. They look very similar. Like if I, I want to be able to tell the difference, but th those are my tricks that I would do to, to find out. But if you let this one go and 
they, they will need like steroids and all that. If they, you let one, this one go and it can actually start melting the sclera, and you can kind of see the um, bluish hue. That's like the inside of the eye, the retina, and all that showing through the sclera. And that's bad, obviously. Okay, so another thing that's. Yes. So for the scleritis patients, do they need to be admitted or or there's depends on how bad they are. Yeah, it depends on how bad they are. If they have or if they're not very compliant, yes. But if they're very compliant and they're not that bad, you can treat them as outpatient patients. But scleritis is something I would have an ophthalmologist see. So they'd come in and act to see it. Yeah. So corneal abrasions. This is also something you guys see quite often. So they have a ton, they have tons of pain. They're tearing all the time, and as soon as you put the propericin in there, it's like you heal them again. Uh, you can stain it with fluorescein, and one thing to ask about is contact lens use because sometimes it sounds like or they were taking my I was taking my contact lens out. It sounds like an abrasion, but it could be beginning of a con, uh, like an ulcer. So just ask about contact lens use. And the treatment, there's so many ways to treat this, but always lubricate them, always give them some sort of antibiotic coverage because the whole epithelium is off the cornea and that's your only protection against the outside world. Once that's off, you can go from an abrasion into an ulcer. So just give them some sort of antibiotic coverage. And then you should tell the patient that every day should be better than the day before because sometimes these abrasions are so big it takes more than a day to heal. But every day, it should get smaller and smaller. And they all want like pain meds. None of the pain meds really work on it. Just tell them if, to like, keep their eyes closed and sleep because the eyelid itself has like protective factors that promotes healing. So that's what you can tell them. Any questions there? OK. So the next one is foreign bodies. Um, one thing about it is some usually by the time they come to the ER, it's been like a day or so, so by then you, they have this rust ring. So don't worry about the rust ring, the body will just like push it out by itself. The thing that you want to get out is the actual foreign body. And there's many ways to do it. The best way that I know of is to go at the slit lamp and use the edge or the tip of a 30 gauge needle. Because it's so thin and flimsy that it's, it's going to be, you really have to push into the cornea to really go through the cornea. But it's good enough that you can like scoop out the foreign body. That's what you, makes you feel comfortable. If you're really into it, I know some ERs do burrs to get the rust ring out. But it's not worth it because your body's going to just push it out it's by itself anyway. So don't worry about that. But again, so once they have, once you've taken the foreign body out, you want to give him some artificial tears and antibiotics. Again, that part of the cornea has no epithelium coverage, so you don't want it to get infected. So that's, you, you want to cover it with some sort of antibiotics. Get it out again? You just sort of... Yeah, you can, most of these you flick out. If it's really, really deep into the cornea, then don't try to do anything. Just call the ophthalmologist for that one. But if it's really superficial, it's like just sitting on there like this and with a <laughs> little rust ring around it, yeah, you can get the... A 30 gauge needle, and you can use the bevel and just scoop it out, and it'll just fall. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. And when they come with foreign bodies, try to flip their eyelids if you're able to, to look for foreign bodies under the eyelids and irrigate them if you think there's any So if So if we remove the foreign body and we send them to the ophthalmologist for follow up, they have a rust ring, do you guys leave it alone? Yeah, because the rust ring, the epithelium grows under it and it just pushes it out. If it's really deep into the stroma of the cornea, then yeah, we go and, and burr it out. But it's not worth it because you're just taking the tissue out with it. Why take tissue out if it's just going to come out by itself? So chemical burn, what do you, what's the first thing? Someone comes into the ER, they say, I splashed some battery alkalosh. Exactly. <laughs> Just irrigate it. And then how long do you wait before you check the pH? After you did your one liter of, of bag of saline. Do you check it right away? 
So wait five to ten minutes because you want everything to equilibrium before you check the pH. If you want to check the pH, and check it in the inferior fornix, which is just like the little cul-de-sac on the bottom, so you know. Okay, which is worse, alkali or acid? Exactly. Perfect. And which is worse, a red eye or a white eye? White eye. Perfect. You guys know this. No. <laughs> why? Not to ask why. Exactly. Okay. So, herpes. So this is another one of those that they can come in. Sounds just. It could sound just like an abrasion. It could just sound like just like an ulcer. And that's what I'm saying. Like your history, you don't really get much out. But you, if you do your exam. You can see dendrites. I would say I've seen dendrites like 80% of the time when they have herpes. The 20%, they could just have uh, conjunctivitis or they could just have uh, like an abrasion looking area. And how would I tell the difference? I don't know. If I am, like, if I keep asking questions. If it looks odd to me, I keep asking questions. If I'm still not sure, I would just give them a cyclovir because. Like, I would rather have them take a cyclovir than have herpes in their eyes for too long. So, um, the treatment is a cyclovir, 400 milligrams, five times a day. You can also give them topical antivirals, and those are a pain to put in their eyes, because they have to do it nine times a day, and it burns. I'm not sure about the compliance, and it's kind of toxic to the cornea anyway. So, I usually just give them a cyclovir, and I give them a whole bunch of uh, artificial tears. Velocyclovir is more expensive, but you don't have to take it frequently? Exactly. You just take it twice a day. Velocyclovir, Valtrex, yeah. But it's expensive, and if, if their insurance pays for it, yes, that would be even better. Actually works better than exactly. How many total days of treatment? Uh, for this, you want 10 days. So the whole reason that they tell you guys in medical school, don't ever prescribe steroids, it's because of this. If, if, if they have herpes in their eyes and you give them steroids, that's like feeding the herpes virus. So, but on the other hand, if they're on acyclovir, the treatment dose, which is the 400 five times a day, if you can give them steroids, it's not going to hurt them. But don't give them steroids if, if you can get away with it. Okay. So corneal ulcers. <laughs> They're very ugly. Um, so always ask about <coughs> contact lens use because I think 90% of the corneal ulcers are caused by contact lens use. And it could be anything. It could be bacterial, it could be fungal, it could be parasites. This, I would not treat myself. I would just send them to an ophthalmologist. But in the meantime, I would put them on some broad-spectrum antibiotics. If, they're, if they look anything like this or this, like give them... We give them fortifieds here, which the pharmacy mixes up. But if you're by yourself, just like give them uh, at least double cover them for pseudomonas. And the way we do it, we give them tobramycin and Vigamox, which is a fluorocornal, okay? And then have them see an ophthalmologist. The one, one caveat about it is if you start them on antibiotics and you send them to the ophthalmologist, if they're using the antibiotics and they need to have a culture done, that culture might not grow because of the antibiotics. So judge to see how far away the ophthalmologist is. If they're going to be able to see the ophthalmologist in an hour or by the end of the day, you should be fine. You don't have to start them on anything. But if it's going to be like a few days before they're able to go and see an ophthalmologist, start them on antibiotics. Cost for the Vigamox is very expensive. But on the other hand, their eyes... Right. The only problem with the tobramycin that's out there, it's not strong enough, but it's better than nothing. What we would do for these, we would like have the pharmacy mix the strength. But yeah. Or you can do ciprofloxacin. That's even better than tobramycin because the strength is a little bit better. So is it generally true that if you can see the corneal lesion under direct light, that it's an ulcer? Well, there are so many corneal lesions, but most most often is going ulcer versus abrasion. Abrasion you shouldn't really be able to see as a white spot. Exactly. 
Exactly. The only time that it becomes confusing is when you put the fluorescein in. Because the abrasion, that whole part of the cornea doesn't have any epithelium, your fluorescein is going to soak through there. It's going to, you're going to be like, oh my gosh, this is, there's something going on. But if, before you do that, if you look at the cornea, it should still be clear. You might have, um, the reflection of the cornea might be irregular, but it should be clear. There shouldn't be any infiltrates. Once you have infiltrates, white infiltrates, that means there's an inflammatory reaction that's happening. Very good point. And both of them, as soon as you put the propericane in, they're going to be like, oh my gosh, everything is healed. So you can't really go by that either. But one thing, you can use the propericane as a diagnostic thing. If you put propericane in someone who has eye pain and it goes away, it's most likely a cornea issue. But if it doesn't go away, it's like an iritis, it's something else going on. That's another way to, to tell. Okay, so when you're looking at your pupil, I know, like when I was in an intern or in medical school, I would like write per law on every one, even without checking the pupil. But check the pupil. That's, that's a way to tell you what's going on. If the pupil is peaked, most likely either your cornea is perforated or there's a foreign body that went through the cornea and it's hit the pupil and it's peaked in that area. And it always points to the area that the pathology is in. Okay? And if you're suspecting ruptured globe, don't push on the eye. And if you see a peak pupil, get a CT of the orbits because, like I said, it's going to be a foreign body. And if there is a foreign body in the globe or in the orbit, then they have to be seen by an ophthalmologist for sure. And last week they told us to get one millimeter cuts to look for the That's the best, yes. So yes. would that be follow-up the same day? So if it, is an, if it is an intraocular, like in the eyeball itself, foreign body, it's basic, it's considered a ruptured globe because something has gone through the, even though it's self-sealed probably by then, it's considered a ruptured globe. So okay. it has to be done that same time. But if it's an intraorbital, depends on what the material is. If it's like, like a BB gun? well, if it's innoxious, then s depending on where it is in the orbit, then you can either wait or have, an, have someone see it. But okay. the, the orbit itself is less concerning than the globe. Because if it's in the orbit, the vision is fine, they can be seen the next day. But if it's in the globe, then definitely, even if the vision is fine, it has to be seen. I had a patient that went to an optometrist with this foreign body sensation. Um, and he was working with some metal, and one of the metal pieces went through the cornea, went through the lens, stuck in, 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 in the vitreous. And this was like two weeks ago. So just because the globe is quote-unquote ruptured, it can seal on its own, and your vision can be fine then. But eventually, it starts getting bad. Anyway, so ruptured globe needs emergent repair. Give them IV antibiotics, broad spectrum. Give them anti-nausea medication, because if they're nauseous, you don't want them to throw up. And when they throw up, they're gonna be, there's going to be a lot of Valsalva and the pressure around the orbits. Give them pain meds, have, like put a shield on the eye, and get a CT and call the ophthalmologist for this one. And you guys have seen plenty of these anyway. Okay. Any questions till then, until here? Sorry. Okay. Okay, angle closure glaucoma. This is one of the ones that comes to the ER quite often, especially here. It's most common among Asians, especially the Vietnamese, and we get we have a lot of Vietnamese coming from uh, from the surrounding area. It's one of the many types of glaucoma, but it's the only type of glaucoma that uh, is basically emergent or urgent. And they're going to have a lot of pain. They're going to have a lot of nausea. They're going to have a headache. They're going to be very blurry. The pupils are going to be mid dilated. Who can tell me why? You're on the right track, <laughs> Not quite. Does it dilate to try and relieve the pressure when it can't dilate all the way? No, not really. So the reason it becomes mid-dilated is once, so, okay, so going back to the anatomy, so this is your lens, this is your ciliary body. The ciliary body is the one that makes the fluid 
the fluid goes around here and it goes into this what we call the angle. And the drainage is right over here. It has to drain there. Now, if for some reason that angle is really narrow, your iris is going to come and block that drainage channel. And the fluid is the fluid is just going to keep building because the fluid is being made by your blood and by your systolic pressure. So the pressure of the eye can go up all the way to whatever your systolic of your eye is, basically. Actually, more the diastolic because the blood has to drain. So more the diastolic. So it can go up all, all the way to 80, 90 if that's what your diastolic is. So this is going to keep pumping, but if, the, if this is closed, it's like a sink that's overflowing and the pressure is just going to build up and build up and build up. The reason it becomes mid-dilated is the iris, which all the muscles are to constrict the pupil, they become ischemic and they don't work anymore and they just stay there. And you get this steamy looking into the cornea because the fluid pressure is so much behind the cornea, it's pushing the fluid into the cornea and it's becoming steamy looking. And they're going to have high pressures. And if you don't have a tonal pen, if you feel your eye and you go feel their eye, their eye is going to feel like rock hard. So if you get one of these, come into the ER, just feel your own eye and then feel their eye and you'll know the difference. Like you don't even need to go get your tonal pen. Can and you tell them about the, the different uh, pressures, like if you feel this, I think you, it was you that taught me that. Oh, really? Yeah. No, I don't know that one. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably someone else. Oh, okay. But yeah, if you like keep doing, if you're like with a tono pen, before you check the tono pen, just feel their eyes. Like you have to like bob their eyes between your two fingers. That's the best way to feel it. And go check the tono pen. You can get a sense of how their pressure is. And you're, you're going to be accurate within five degrees or so. So you'll be like, be a master. You don't have to have a tone up and all the time. Question? Yeah. Is there any trick that you use to relax a patient? Like oftentimes, I think I'm doing a good job measuring uh, intraocular pressure, but it just comes out high. Maybe are they... Yeah. So one thing is when you're checking the pressure, make sure your hand is resting on the bone. Because if it's not resting on the bone, you're putting an advent pressure on their eyeball itself. So. The other thing is, I tell them to focus on something to look at in front of them. So usually it's the light switch in the, in the ER room. I tell them with their other eye to keep looking at the light switch. Then they won't really see you come towards their eye with this tonal pen. They're not really paying attention to you. They're paying attention to the light switch. And you get a better reading that way. Because you kind of have to distract them. Because it's kind of like that's your first instinct. If something's coming towards your eye, you don't you want to back away or move. Okay, so what do you do? If you're by yourself and you have this, give them Diamox. If there's no allergies or if their kidneys are fine, give them Diamox. And give them all the glaucoma drops. Give them pilocarpine. The pilocarpine will try to constrict the pupil. The Cosop, the Ramonidine, these will stop the ciliary body from making fluid. So it'll try to catch up with the drainage system a little bit and bring the pressure down. And they will need laser. That's the ultimate treatment. You can sometimes break their glaucoma attack, but they will still need lasers done. So they have to see an ophthalmologist. But if you're by yourself, at least tr start them on these things before you, they see the ophthalmologist. Okay? And if the pressure are so high, no matter how many drops you give them, it's not going to penetrate because the force of the fluid is to get out, not to go in. So your only thing is Diamox, basically. But um, Diamox, you can, if their kidneys are fine, you can give them 500 milligrams like two times a day. Any questions here? Is Timolol Cosat? Okay, Cosat is Timolol and uh, Dorzolamide, which is same class as Diamox. So Cosat is two combinations. And this is Alpha-GAN, basically. It's another name. Okay, so problems with the retina. There's a whole bunch of problems with the retina, but the things that you guys are going to see most often is someone comes into the ER with flashing, flashing lights and floaters. And 
this is one of the only times that your history is actually helping you go into one specific area of the eye, which is either the vitreous, there's a problem with the vitreous, or there's a problem with the retina. And the flashing lights come from any sort of tug on the retina causes the retina to fire, so they see flashing lights, okay? So that's a little bit more specific. They can say, well, I see these cogwebs and all these. And there's an entity called posterior vitreous detachment. Basically what happens is the vitreous here, as we age, instead of being this solid gel, like in kids, it's like, it's like, it's solid, it's not even a gel. Yeah, it's like crazy. But um, as we age, it becomes more liquid. When it becomes more liquid, it doesn't hold itself up anymore, it doesn't hold its shape up anymore, and it wants to come off its attachments, and it's attached to the retina as well. So when it comes off the retina, it's tugging on the retina, and it causes it to fire, and you see the flashing lights. Vitreous detachment by itself is not a big deal, but if that vitreous pulls on the retina hard enough, it can actually tear the retina, and the vitreous that's become more fluid now, that fluid can go behind the tear and push the rest of the retina out and bec become a retinal detachment. So at the end of the day, they're going to have the same symptoms once they come and see you. And the only way to know if it's not a tear or a detachment is to dilate them and look inside the eye, which is really tough to do uh, if you don't, like, I, I can't even use the direct, I'll be honest. I have to have my own lenses to look at the retina and all that. So, so this one, I would have them see optometrist, ophthalmologist, someone who's able to dilate them and look at the back of the retina. Um, I know you guys are very big with ultrasounds, so this is why I put this on. What are these? <laughs> Both of them? I know this one is labeled, so that makes it easy, but... <laughs> But, so what is this one? Then? Is this a retinal detachment? Okay. So easy way to say is how it moves. So once you're doing the ultrasound, have them look different directions. Your vitreous detachment, because it's become more fluid, it's just going to like flop in the wind like this. Your retina, because your, even if your, the whole retina detaches, the retina is such a top membrane that it's just going to stay still. It's not going to go like this in the wind. Okay, that's one way to tell. The other thing is when we do our ultrasound, the, like the eye ultrasounds have this thing called the A-scan. And the A-scan gives you a spike right where the retina is. Your vitreous, even if it's a vitreous hemorrhage, it doesn't give you a spike because that's, because the retina, behind the retina, you have this layer of pigmented cells, and those will reflect the ultrasound off, so you get a spike. So that's another way to tell. Any questions there? So the one on the right is also a retinal detachment? No, this is a vitreous detachment. But if you show this to an ophthalmologist, they wouldn't be able to tell you, because they have to see how it moves. Sort of, this is a giveaway, if you really think about it, it's the nerve. And if it was the retina detached, the retina will always come to the nerve because you're not detaching your horn because it's always attached to the nerve. So, so because you can see the nerve and the fact that the whatever that structure is not attached to it, it has to be vitreous detachment. It's most likely with vitreous detachment. Yeah. Okay. So retinovascular events. Unfortunately, you don't really you can't really do anything about it. They like. Nothing is proven. You can give them diamox to bring their eye pressure down. You can push on their eye to massage it to try to release that clot or that um, emboli further down the stream. Uh, you can have them hyperventilate in a bag to raise their CO2 to dilate their blood vessel. At the end of the day, if it's been more than 90 minutes since the event happened, it's dead basically. But What's more important is to do the workup. So if there are young people having these issues, you might want to do a hypercoagulable workup. If they're really old and above, I guess, 50, and that's not really old, 
Um, you want to you want to think about giant cell arteritis. That's what you want to check. You want to see if they have any other symptoms that would go with it to do CRP, ESR, or if they have uh, like diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia. You want to check their carotid. Basically, you do the workup so they don't have a stroke or it doesn't happen to their other eye. You don't really, you can't really do much about this side because it's like brain tissue. Once it's dead, it's kind of dead. You don't really, you can't really do much about it. And it'll just heal on its own natural course. What kind of time frame do you have in central retinal artery occlusion to save it? 90 minutes since it happens. The door to balloon time? I guess. <laughs> There's no ballooning, but yes. I know in some areas, interventional radiology has, like, tried to open it up. I don't know how successful they are, and it's not like standard of care anyway, but yeah. How do you pronounce the uh, condition in, in parentheses there? Which Amorosis. Amorosis fugax? Or Harchi. Or Harchi, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we were stating that earlier. <laughs> fugax. That's what I say, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> 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 okay, so the last part of the eye is the nerve. So this one, every time we come and dilate the patient, it's a good time for you guys to take the direct ophthalmoscope and look it into their eyes because they're so dilated you should be able to see the nerve. Um, one thing to keep in mind is there are so many causes for the nerve to look like this, okay? And it can go on and on and on. Um, as far as nomenclature goes, we call, we call everything optic nerve edema. The only time we call it papal edema if it's increased ICP. That's the only time you can call it papal edema. Other than that, it's optic nerve edema. And it can be caused by MS, it can be caused by vascular events, infection, diabetes, thyroid, compression. It could even be a mitochondrial disorder that could cause it. So, if you see this, there's really not much you can do. I would get a CT, um, or even it's better to even get an MRI, um, because you can look for any lesions for the MS, and you can see if the nerve is enhancing, which can go for the optic neuritis. But I would have them see an ophthalmologist for this one. I don't think you can do much about it in the ER. And if they're here at this point, um, Unless there's something intracranially going on, they can see an ophthalmologist the next day or that night or whatever. It doesn't matter. It's not like something has to be done. And one way to test if it is the optic nerve or not, which is easy, you can. Uh, what's this? Is something called red desaturation. So what happens is when they have any sort of problems with their optic nerve the color red looks less red to them in that eye. And what you can do is, if, for example, if I come in and say my right eye, I'm not seeing too well out of it, and it's my optic nerve, there's an issue with it. If you show me the color of the top of the um, dilating drops, which is all red, or if you show them anything that's red, like show that to me in my left with my left eye open only, and say like if this is 100% redness, then show it to them with the right eye how much redness it is, and it's always going to be less. And that's the way for you to tell if it's their optic nerve or not. That's a little trick you can do. Mm -hmm. The other thing you can do is to do the swinging flashlight test. Basically, the reason this works is the optic nerve, which takes all the information from the retina into your brain, if there's an issue with it, it's, not, it's going to be very slow taking that information to the brain. And when you shine the light into the normal eye, let's say you're going to have 100% constriction of your pupil, but if you shine it into your abnormal eye, you're going to have, let's say, 50% constriction of that pupil. So that way you can tell the difference between the two and if there's any problems with the optic nerve. And that's all I have for you guys, actually. Thank you. Thank you. you guys want me to talk about at least next time or if, you, if I get invited next time. <laughs> no, that was fantastic. So I had a, uh, had a quick question, Pyam. So you mentioned uh, scleritis is something that you know needs 
like, like on what kind of base, like time basis, would you have to have that seen by an ophthalmologist? I would have them if it's depending on how severe it is. Again, if it's really severe, I would have them seen either that day or the next day. Okay. Don't wait too long. And is there any particular way, like, to describe that better on the phone so that you don't call your ophthalmology consultant and say, "Hey, um, you know, I think this guy has scleritis." He's like, "So you're telling me the guy has conjunctivitis and I need to come in at 3:30 in the morning." Like, how would you? Uh, what are you looking for on the phone that would differentiate that between this guy is just sending me calling me about conjunctivitis? Hmm. Uh, you can if you did your phenylephrine blanching test and the Q-tip test and say it doesn't move. Like in every ophthalmologist mind, that's like spiritus until proven other otherwise. Anyway, so if you say you did that and didn't do anything, then I think that's a good okay. way to say it. Okay, cool. I, the phenylephrine part, I think, is the uh, Q-tip part is totally doable. Yeah, you can do the Q-tip part. Later. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, it does dilate them a little bit once you put the phenylephrine. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, <it's laughs> cool. Are we? Um, I'm not sure. I don't know. Like, if you're not able to see, even if you dilate them, why dilate them? The, the problem with dilation is if they have a narrow angle and you dilate them, you can put them into an angle closure attack. Right. It's so all, it, but if you need to dilate, if the safest thing to dilate with would be phenylephrine, not the other stuff. Because phenylephrine you can reverse with pilocarpine easily. It sounds like a lot of the stuff can be seen as an outpatient, not outpatient, but you know, follow up in 24 hours, even the lid-lax thing that goes from 24 hours. What kind of stuff needs to be seen by the ophthalmologist, like, immediately? Because I know it's, it's easy with you guys, because you guys always come and see them no matter what, but sometimes it's hard for me to differentiate about what they So the thing that has to be absolutely seen is, I would say corneal ulcers, ruptured globe, um, like I said, if there's a fracture that has any sort of entrapment in there, okay. has, or especially if it's a young kid. Um, Retrobulbar hematoma, if it is like causing problems, definitely. Um, if it is uh, anything you would think it's vision threatening, okay. I would say. But as far as opto emergencies that have to be seen right away, there's not, truly there's not that many. I'm not trying to say this so you don't call us or anything. Like, this is our education, too, when you call yeah. us. So we're happy. That's why we're so happy to come in. Um, but as far as, like, out in the real world, um, like, angle closure is another emergency because they say time is nerve. So the longer time they're in angle closure with a high pressure, they're losing their nerve fibers. So that's considered another emergency. Yeah. Well. Retinal right? detachment, even if it's threatening the macula, it can wait, take... Per our textbook, it can wait 24 hours uh, before it's fixed. But so it's pretty much almost all of you managed. And I see my ophthalmologist right away. So yeah. Okay. So a lot of our patients are obviously uninsured, and so a lot of times we'll like give you guys a call saying, "Hey, can you guys just see them in clinic?" So yeah. How many of them actually show up and aren't charged or are charged or like what's the deal with that? So the problem with our clinic is they have to have some sort of insurance to be seen. So if they have no insurance, then it has to be the ER. But the problem comes is, even if they have an issue, for example, they have a vitreous hemorrhage, there's not much I can do.